Thank you for listening to Cure the Culture with Nia and Ebony. On this podcast, we facilitate conversations about health in the Black community and answer your questions through a research-based lens. We create a safe haven for Black patients and Black healthcare professionals to share their unique medical journeys. Tune in now for guidance, personal stories, and the latest research on everything Black health. Okay, welcome to another episode of Cure the Culture. We are so excited to have you guys here today. Yes. We are going to be talking with our guest, Aubrey Red, who is a registered nutritionist and dietitian. She is going to be speaking to us today about food, all things holiday food, and also some really great healthy tips for everyone to keep in mind for prevention of hypertension Mm -hmm. as well as diabetes. So we're going to get into that today. I know we briefly touched on it before in in a prior episode, but today me and Ebony are really hoping to dive into those two medical conditions and really um, give you guys some ideas as far as the holidays. So one, Ebony, how have you been? I've been all right. You know, this is getting to be that time of year where things start to get real for us. Yeah, yeah. It seems like the wintertime is always really tough in medicine, and I'm sure it's the same in mental health. I got COVID. Yeah. So, uh, I was really careful. I went two years without getting COVID. I was like bragging about it. I was like, I had two years. I was seeing patients when we had no idea how to treat it. At the Arthur Ashe Stadium and the Epicenter. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember literally like field medicine, how it was in the very beginning. And I think we've come such a long way, but I finally got it. I finally got it. Seeing patients right before New Year's and a couple of my patients were, I believe, asymptomatic and then became symptomatic three or four days later. And at my institution, we're actually seeing patients in the office again, which is good because I'm happy to see patients in the office and we wear PPE. But Mm -hmm. when people don't think you have symptoms, you know things can slip through the cracks. And so I'm not sure if I got it that way or from the holidays. I had a holiday dinner. I finally celebrated Christmas with my family. So somewhere along the lines, I picked it up. And I think Omicron is one of those things that Mm -hmm. it's so easily transmissible that it's, I'm happily vaccinated and happily boosted. I got my Johnson & Johnson vaccine and then I got my booster probably six months after I got the Moderna booster. I knew I had COVID, Eb, because my body aches were so bad. And I remember being like, the only time I've ever felt like this is after I had my Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And I was like, I feel like my body is fighting the same virus, you know? And I just had an inkling and I went and got tested and I had a rapid test done by my hospital system and I was positive. So I've been on isolation um, but it's, it's, it's been an, ex- I, I totally think I like barely even spiked a fever. Um, I, I think I know, actually, I don't think, I know if I would not have been vaccinated, it would have been a way worse course for me. Um, and if I wouldn't have been boosted too. So I'm very, very thankful to be in, in the position that I am where I, where I have access to the vaccine. So How have you been, though? How are things with you? Well, I'm grateful to have been still evading the (laughs) ever prevalent, ever pervasive Omicron variant and just COVID in general. But I'll have to say I see a, a huge student population and a lot of them are contracting it. And so the way that a lot of the university systems are navigating it is just not quite conducive to mental health. So... And I get it because fear body takes over. You don't want it to spread to the rest of the population. There's some liability in it for them. Everyone's probably on the student health plan. So they're putting them in like isolation housing. And, you know, they're going back to things like virtual classrooms, which for my depressed folk, that's not our jam. Like (laughs) that really makes motivation really difficult. So I'm just noticing a lot more crisis calls, a lot more like in-between session follow-up. Some people are wanting sessions twice a week. This is that time of year like where you can't get enough therapy. So I'm just trying to find spaces where there's compassion, fatigue, what's the word, outlets, like where we can kind of discharge some of that energy. As much as I, I feel like we've come in such a long way, I feel like we're still in such a reactive way of 
of handling this pandemic. And it, it's, it's exhausting because I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but I feel like we're going to continue to see variants until we have a, a larger percentage of the world, not just the United States um, vaccinated. And until we start sharing vaccines as governments and taking responsibility for the fact that this virus will continue to mutate until it becomes a thing of the past or until, until it becomes an ever more prevalent issue and becomes more um, deadly. So my whole thing is I want society to not only think about the global response for a pandemic and how we need to really make sure that everybody who wants to be vaccinated and can be vaccinated is vaccinated, but also like how we're dealing with mental health is just like been atrocious for a long time, but even more so I'm seeing it affect my, my kids, like the kids at my practice, because now schools are shutting down again. It's this loop. We're on an ever like... I feel like I'm in Groundhog Day. You you are. And so (laughs) that's what I feel like is changing about healthcare in general. So we're becoming more proactive. I'm getting a much more new patient call since the new year, which I know that's a lot of people's new year's resolution. But also I think people are understanding like, I got to get ahead of this. I can't wait until I'm in that dark, like winter blues place. I've got to really get on on top of my mental health. I've got to get on top of my physical health. So even like our topic today, nutrition, food is medicine. Food is the way that you prevent a lot of these like uh, diseases that plague our community. And that's what I'm hoping that we get into when we get this information. I think you're totally right. And I think that I'm really happy we're having this conversation today. But I also want everybody to take every day just for the day. Because I think sometimes even me, I get so bogged down about like next week or like in three days or like even when I was in quarantine, I was like, oh my gosh, like I have, I'm missing so much work. And like, I felt bad because I was, I was out and my coworkers were having to carry the the brunt of me not being available, which really affects the community. But I want all of our listeners to really try to take their day just for their day, their hour, just for their hour and make conscious decisions for themselves with food and also with their mental health and do the things that, I mean, we, I wish we all had access to an affordable therapist, you know, but that's just not the reality of it. And so I want everybody to just reach out to people you love and care about because I think year two, this is like, what, this is about to be year three or year two? Uh, you I'm, know, I'm like, pretty much year three. <laughs> Technically year <laughs> three. three. Technically year three because 2019 <laughs> is when there first started to be cases. So yeah, we're yeah. in 2022 <clears throat> now. This is, yeah. wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So year three feels like, um, I feel like I'm up against the boss in a video game. I know, you know? yeah. And it's like the final stages this of is. a video game. Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully we can uh, start doing the right things. We need to really start vaccine sharing. We really need to start thinking as a global community for mental health and for uh, prevention of infectious disease. So mm-hmm. I want to get into Mr. Frederick McKinley Jones, mm, uh, yeah. who is going to be our, ta- our our little fun fact for today. Yeah, our history fact. Yeah, I, I really like this one. This one has something to do with nutrition and it also has something to do with medicine, which I think are so closely linked. Mm-hmm. Mr. Frederick Jones, was uh, he invented in 1935 the first portable refrigerator unit. Oh, snap. Yeah, so he made it possible to transport perishable items, including foods, over a very long distance because without refrigeration, you can't do that, obviously. Things will go bad. His creation was heavily used in World War II, not just for food, but for medical goods and medical things that could not go bad, for instance, like blood. Mm -hmm. So Mr. Frederick McKinley Jones, everybody. Wow. Uh, Thank you for for his contribution, his family for for raising him to be the inventor that he was Mm -hmm. and for encouraging Black invention. Mm -hmm. I'm sure we still use his invention oh, yeah. to this day. What what about even <laughs> tailgating season? Like I mean yeah. there's literally like I think I keep my skincare in a portable refrigerator. Yeah. So this is yeah. definitely still super relevant. But the medical field, I mean, wasn't there a whole thing about how they're gonna keep the vaccines cold? So they're still yeah. using his technology. Yeah. <laughs> still using it. Yeah, still using it. That was like a huge thing. Yeah. Moderna is not one of those vaccines, but 
but the other vaccines yeah. do have to be kept. The, the the first couple that came out were so we need him. Kept a certain we need him. We're still using some of his inventions, I'm sure, been tweaked and but the the original is the original. Yeah. So yeah. So are you are you excited to introduce our guest? Let's start yeah. to introduce her today. I'm really excited to have Aubrey. So mm-hmm. let's get into that. So welcome to another episode of Cure the Culture. We have here with us today, Miss Aubrey Red. She has joined us from Pennsylvania and she's going to be here. She's a registered nutritionist and she's going to be here to speak to us today about a really interesting concept and topic called Healthy at Every Size. I want to give you guys a little bit of background about Miss Red. She has her master's and she's a registered dietitian and nutritionist. She practices in Pennsylvania. She does have her own private practice called Aubrey Red Nutrition which aims to support women on their journey from exiting diet culture and finding food freedom. What a word, finding food freedom. That sounds delicious. I think I need that. For her, nutrition is not one size fits all. It's an individualized approach. You can visit her on her website at www.aubreyred with two Ds, nutrition.com, or you can follow her on Instagram like everybody else at busy.babes.nutritionists. So thank you, Miss Red, for joining us, Aubrey. Yes, so glad to have you. Yeah, of course. Happy to be here. So we wanted to actually start the conversation by asking, we ask every guest, how did they start their journey into their chosen career fields? So how did you decide nutrition was for you and this is what you wanted to do? Good question. So it started out when I was in high school which I feel like a lot of people usually say that like their journey started out when they were in high school because everybody has to kind of decide, what am I going to do now? I know. Yeah. <laughs> I have to choose mm-hmm. a major. I'm 16 and I need to figure this out. <laughs> figure my life. Yes. So I was in that boat. I was kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do when I went to school. And when I was a junior in high school, I just very randomly decided that I wanted to be a vegetarian. I was like, I'm going to do this. This sounds like it's good for the environment, good for animals. And so when I was kind of telling everybody about this journey that I was going on to become a vegetarian, everybody's first question was, how are you going to get any protein? How are you going to get protein? What are you going to eat? And honestly, my answer was, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I'll figure it out. (laughs) I have no idea. So I started to look into it. I was like, what is protein? What kind of foods have protein, things like that. And then I started to realize this is really interesting. I'm kind of interested in learning about different foods, different ways to nourish your body. And that's kind of what got the ball rolling on all of it was just this spur of the moment decision to become plant-based, become vegetarian. I am no longer vegetarian. That was a recent change during COVID. Oh, I could imagine trying to find places to eat out. Vegetarian options. During COVID. Yeah. Just accessibility to everything was a little bit low. And I decided, I think from where I started, you know, the mindset when I was in high school was it's really important to me because I watched a documentary, I think, about animal cruelty or something like that. I was kind of just in a different place now where I was like, okay, well, I know a lot more about nutrition and these things and I know how to make better choices and things like that. So that's kind of what led me to make that switch in the recent past. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So you kind of got into the different food groups and that was try to become a vegetarian or was a vegetarian. How long were you a vegetarian for? I was a vegetarian. Somebody else asked me this recently. I think like seven years wow. I wow. was a vegetarian. My dad has been a pescatarian for I think more than 10 years now. And pescatarian for those who don't know is you can eat fish, but most of your diet is vegetarian. You eat vegetables mostly. Your protein is usually fish. That's like the only protein yeah. you can have. But he didn't eat eggs or anything, just fish. Wow. Did you feel healthier as a vegetarian? I feel pretty equally healthy. I think because I kind of know how to nourish myself. I know the kinds of things that I want to be eating and the things that fuel me. So I feel pretty much equally as healthy. I think when I first made that decision to become a vegetarian, I was in high school. So I don't really know what I was eating. Probably just like fast food all the time. (laughs) It doesn't have meat. So it's, yeah. So it definitely feels like once I learned like the right things to eat as a vegetarian, I kind of feel similarly to how I feel now, you know, still incorporating. It's a slow process. I don't eat a ton of meat, but incorporating it in bits and pieces. I love how what motivated you to get into this field started from a personal experience. I think Nia and I can relate to that. But I'm curious of what made you want to broaden that out to other people? What made you want to share your knowledge with the rest of the world? So when I was growing up, my parents always told me either that I would be a great nurse 
which I couldn't do that. I can't handle like blood. Oh, yeah. I probably wouldn't be able to do that. Or I would be a great teacher. And so, you know, I wasn't like super sure about teaching. And then when I was in college going through these nutrition courses, a lot of what we do as dietitians is really focused around patient education, group education, things like that. So we take a lot of courses to learn about how to properly speak to people, you know, the right types of education, things like that. And I really felt engaged around that and the ability to kind of share my knowledge with somebody in a way that felt helpful. And when I first graduated with my degree, I wasn't initially going to become a dietitian. You can kind of take some other avenues. I started teaching for a program from Drexel University. It's in Philadelphia. They teach nutrition in the Philly school district. So I would teach K to 12 about nutrition, which was so Fun. Oh. <laughs> you merged the two. Yeah, you did. You took all of the great things about nursing without any of the blood and guts <laughs> and the poop. And then you're just like, no, I'm going to do nutrition. It's much more clean. And then also you were able to teach children in Philly, which I think is an excellent opportunity for those kids to have learned from you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And then how did you go from teaching to doing what you do now and, and starting your own business? I like to start on that. How do you take something you're interested in and make it into your own child? If you how will? do you become the boss? How do you become the boss? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Great question. Still don't know if I feel like I'm the boss sometimes. <laughs> Once I decided I was in that role and I decided I was going to become a dietitian, when you become a dietitian, you go through a year-long internship. And so in that internship, you kind of get to experience all the different aspects of what it's like to be a dietitian. So you can work in food service. So I worked at a school and I did some school food service. You get to do clinical. So I worked in a hospital and a long-term care. And then you get to do your community rotation, which usually people say that's like the fun rotation. And I supported at a grocery store that did a lot of one-on-one counseling. That was like a lot of their outreach. And that's where I really grew that passion for that one-on-one connecting because it was so fun to teach K-12, really getting to kind of instill that information just into one person and watch the progress was so rewarding. So as I was kind of wrapping up the internship, deciding like, what am I going to do next? I thought, why not start a business? I could do it. Anybody could do it. Now's the right time. It's COVID. We can't really do much anyway. So might as well get it started now while I have the time. So right after I finished my internship, that's when I decided I was just going to file all the paperwork and started my own private practice. Wow, Aubrey, that's such an amazing story. It's scary, right? Ebony has started a million businesses. So she's like the wrong person to like, (laughs) I can't even with her. But this podcast was my first baby. And so I'm like, I'm always asking her a million questions because it just seems like there's so much to know. What has been mm-hmm. like the scariest thing about starting a business and what has been like the most rewarding for you? Good question. Oh, that is a good question. I would say the scariest thing is probably just not always knowing if I'm doing the right things, especially like logistics things, like legal things and financial things. And I'm not an accountant. I'm also not, not a, a lawyer. lawyer so. <laughs> yeah, that's not what I went to school for. Yeah. Right. <laughs> making sure I'm doing the right things, just kind of like tiptoeing around stuff like that. That's probably the scariest part for me, at least. And then the most rewarding part is definitely just getting to really help people. And especially like the people that I feel really passionate about helping people who maybe come from a background where they've been dieting a lot. And you know, they're just like sick of feeling this way and sick of feeling down. I think kind of being able to be that booster and that confidence booster for people is really what I enjoy and it's so rewarding in having private practice. Mm -hmm. Talk about dieting. That's a great segue into this topic. So let's talk about healthy at every size and what, even if you don't speak about necessarily the research, but what is the concept of healthy at every size? And is it a program like we can do training as PAs in certain things to have a niche background in something? Is this a concept, like a broad concept, or is it a training that you specifically have to do to get a certification or something like that? Good question. It's more of like a broad concept. As a dietitian, you can be trained in certain aspects that I think support health at every size. So you can become like an intuitive eating dietitian and you can get a specialized training in that. But health at every size, really the point of the movement in itself is just to support equitable care for everyone, non-biased care for everyone, whether that is in a nutrition sense, or even in a medical sense. If somebody goes to the doctor, they don't want to feel like they're receiving 
recommendations from their doctor based on their weight or biases based on their weight. So that's kind of the health at every size movement is promoting the fact that maybe not everything is weight-based. There are lots of social, economic, environmental factors that are going to be affecting someone's health. To just say that weight is the only thing that's maybe affecting something is a really broad statement. I think that's really important, Aubrey, because I can't tell you how many times I specialize in trauma as a psychotherapist. So when I speak to my patients about their medical trauma, a lot of it has to do with the perception that their providers are judging them based on their weight or their size. And so I think it's important even just for patient compliance for that rapport that you build with folks so that way they can be healthy to feel like, yeah, this isn't the main thing you're looking at. You're considering a holistic approach. So I think that's huge. Definitely. So for me, we look at someone's weight and it's a number. We get their height, their weight, their temperature, their blood pressure, their pulse, their oxygen saturation, and it's vitals. It's kind of hard for me as a provider to kind of separate that number from the patient because there's so many comorbidities to Mm -hmm. weight gain and obesity. As providers, we of course can always work to be sensitive around any issue, whether it be race, religion, weight, But how do Mm -hmm. we educate our patients and then also make them aware, like if they were a smoker, if you're a smoker and you chose to smoke cigarettes or you became addicted at a young age, because most of it is not, someone gave you a cigarette and then this is how addictions start. Someone introduced it to you. And when I see a smoker, there are certain things when I talk to them about, even with COVID, I say, okay, well, you're a smoker. So that puts you at a higher risk for this. Is healthy at every size saying that we shouldn't as providers do that? Or is healthy at every size saying that we shouldn't be blaming? everything on the weight. And I think that's the big difference that I think people don't understand is they don't want to hear every complaint that they come into an office with, like, oh, that's because of this or your weight. There could be some correlation, but there might be other things that are going on, like you were saying, the socioeconomic stuff. So am I getting that right, Aubrey? Is that the correct senses of what you're trying to say? Right. Taking that like stigma or that blame away from the weight. You know, I think a lot of people experience and you know, I've personally experienced this myself where I've gone to the doctor and I've said, I have XYZ that I'm feeling is like wrong with me. I want to get some lab work done because I'm feeling like, you know, maybe something's up. And they've said, oh, well, you know, your weight is kind of high. Like if you lose weight, then XYZ will go away. And I'm like, okay, well, I would still prefer to check <laughs> my labs <laughs> to know <laughs> what's wrong. Yeah. So I think kind of, you know, taking that immediate jump to like, oh, it's yeah. probably weight-based. You need to have a broad differential. That's what you're saying. You shouldn't just be saying everything is related to the weight. It should be like, if someone comes in with shortness of breath and they're a smoker, of course, it could be related to their smoking, but they also could have lung cancer. They could also have a pulmonary embolism. They could also have had a trauma and fell and had a pneumothorax. So there's a bunch of things that you should be doing before you just say, like it should be a rule out type of thing for medical providers. So rule everything out. And then if there's nothing that you're finding, either get a second opinion or then have the discussion about weight. Sure. And then like maybe then point them in the direction of a dietitian to say like, okay, well, your A1C is high. And so your A1C is the reading of your blood sugars over a three month period. So to say your A1C is high, it might be weight related. You could also say, okay, well, what types of foods are you eating? Right. Mm -hmm. How much activity are you getting? Right. I'm glad we're having this discussion because I think people don't understand that weight gain is a symptom of usually other things. Like your socioeconomic status, like we were saying, how close are you to a park? Or a grocery store. How much does it cost you to get a gym membership? And do you have the time to actually go to the gym if you're working a 10 to 12 hour shift? You know, I think a lot of these things, it's just like lazy diagnosis. Mm -hmm. It's just like a lazy thing to say that everything's based off of weight instead of just like actually talking to your patients about what are the barriers to them feeling healthy. Mm -hmm. Sure. That was really educational. Thank you for clearing that up for me. Yeah, of course. So let's talk about diet culture. Sure. Especially with COVID. I think almost every one of my patients or I certainly gain weight. Everybody's been gaining weight because there's not much to do. Mm. I can't even believe we're talking about this two years in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, This new variant has come. And it's about to get real again. Uh They just shut down gyms in Montreal and Quebec. So this affects everybody. You can't go out. You feel like you can't go out and get the activity or the exercise. You're sitting at home more. You're not even commuting to work to get those steps in. So a lot of people are going to diets. So what are some of the diets that you hear about? And what is the problem with diet culture? 
I would say biggest number one diet that I get questions on probably one every single day is keto. Keto. I'm sure you are not surprised by that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Everybody wants to do keto. Everybody's on keto. The keto diet is like a heavily fat-based and protein-based diet with a really serious carb restriction, which carbs are giving energy to your brain. They're giving energy to your body. So they're pretty important. (laughs) (laughs) So the keto diet was actually developed and I don't know all of the science behind it, but it was originally developed to help children with epilepsy. Yes. It was reducing their seizures and the seizure activity. I don't know when we decided that it (laughs) was a diet just for everyone. But as far as the problem with diet culture and all the different types of diets is that they're very one size fits all. Mm -hmm. I like to tell all my patients, if we all ate exactly the same thing every day, if we all exercised and moved our bodies exactly the same way every day, we would all look different. All of our bodies would be different. You know, we all are going to have a genetic predisposition for a body shape and for health disparities and things like that, that some of it can't be avoided. So to say so-and-so down the street is on keto or Atkins or something like that, and they lost 30 pounds, I'm going to try that too. Well, you're going to have a completely different reaction to that diet. You could maybe lose 30 pounds, you could lose five, you could gain weight, who knows? So that's why I really like the individualized approach, being able to do this one-on-one counseling because I can say, okay, well, this is what you're eating now. What are some steps that we can take to move forward? Or, you know, what are your goals? Things like that. It's more important for it to be a lifestyle change versus the diet, which is usually just a quick change, a couple month change to get to a certain goal. And why do people struggle so hard with the diets? Is it because they're not getting the results, like you said, because everybody's shape is different and everybody will lose and gain weight based off of different things? People have a hard time with diets. And then I think that they may initially get the results, but then it's also the maintaining it. In the beginning, I think a diet, it's new. So everything is like, oh, I'm trying this for the first time and it can be exciting. But prolonged over a long period of time, I think it gets harder and harder for people to maintain, especially something like the keto diet, which is you're eliminating all carbs from your diet. It's so funny because there's always been low carb diets, but for some reason, because it's keto, people want it, but it's the same thing as like the other diet. (laughs) It's a new spin. (laughs) Just a low carbohydrate based diet, which I think works for some people, but in the long term, especially during holidays and other things, like how realistic is it for you to maintain something like that? Mm -hmm. Right. And that's the whole point of the one-on-one counseling with a dietitian is to really find something that's going to have longevity. So it's going to last you for your lifetime. You know, I want you to feel like you can eat whatever you want in the ways that you want to and feel comfortable in that way, not having to go to a family party and say, oh, I can't eat that, you know, or that's not part of my diet, something like that. So making it that lifestyle change, something that's going to last you and it's going to continue to work for you in the future. So do you work with your patients on, because you're healthy at every size, do you work with them about weight loss or do you work with them on, I guess it's individualized, do you work with them about getting them to feel healthier? Because healthier is such a, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so broad. Are you measuring your A1C? Are you measuring your cholesterol? Are you measuring your weight? What is the end goal? So is it different for each of your patients? And can you give us some examples? Sure. I like to focus. Of course, I want to help everybody in a way that feels authentic to them. So I've had a lot of people come into my practice who I've kind of nudged them in the direction of maybe weight isn't so important, but they've said, you know what? Weight is really important to me. That's going to be my indicator of success. And then over time, they kind of realize oh, I have these other indicators of success. So I think that's usually my main goal is trying to get people to focus on the other indicators of success. For example, I want to stop feeling winded when I go up a couple flights of stairs, or I want to be able to play baseball with my children. Things that are changes that maybe you don't see, maybe the scale doesn't reflect, but you can feel it. You know, I want to be less tired. Mm -hmm. I want to understand my fullness cues better, things like that. Oh, hunger cues. Now you're getting into baby language. (laughs) (laughs) We do intuitive eating with kids too. Because, you know, I supposedly do pediatrics and my favorite stage is like that, depending on the baby. But four to six months, really around eight months when parents feel really comfortable with food. I try to teach them that intuitive eating from the beginning, you know, like because babies do it and parents ignore it. They're not Mm -hmm. hungry. They're like, oh, you need to finish your plate. Right, right. (laughs) They're giving you their fullness cues. 
And how cool does it feel to say my practice? I was listening to you say like when people come into my practice, like how cool is it that you're saying that at such a young age? Are your parents like so proud of you, Aubrey? Oh, yes. They are so proud, gushing. They love it. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's so cool too. Like I just really appreciate that I've been able to have this opportunity. And I think a lot of times in dietetics, a lot of people will tell you, you know, we're really encouraged to go into a more clinical setting from the beginning. I don't know what it's like with you guys, you know, with being a PA and being a therapist. I think it's really encouraged to go into a more clinical aspect. But going into private practice right away, I think there were a lot of people who had reservations. And I think the best part is being able to show people that I could do this on my own. I could manage this. And, you know, people are having these results and I'm helping so many people. It's so exciting. Yeah. And the best referral is a happy patient. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of private practice, one of the reasons I joined private practice, which I feel like you'll be able to relate to, Aubrey, is to serve the people that I really wanted to serve. Yes. I think you alluded to that earlier. Could you speak a little bit about why it's important that we have Black nutritionists and maybe even include why you decided to join diversity dietetics? And am I saying that correctly? I always fudge Diversify that dietetics. Diversify yeah. dietetics. <laughs> <laughs> I'll start with why I decided to join diversify dietetics. The field of nutrition is very limited in its mm-hmm. diversity. There was an article that came out last year in the New York Times that talked kind of about how there's just such a limited amount of diversity. I think it's 90% white in the field. And it's also predominantly women in the field. And I think that's an even higher percentage. I want to say like 96% women. So I think in a lot of my classes and going through college and the internship, I didn't see a lot of diversity in that. And it felt a little isolating at times, honestly, to say, okay, well, all of my other classmates, they all have had kind of different maybe experiences than I have had. So I wanted to join Diversify Dietetics to really strengthen my network and also just kind of get to meet and talk to other dietitians and RD to Bs, people who are becoming dietitians about their experiences and how they've gone through their journeys, things like that. So that's probably why I joined Diversify Dietetics. And I've really appreciated all of the opportunities it's given me as well. And then as far as being able to kind of serve the patients I want to and the need for Black dietitians, mm-hmm. I also previously, while I was like doing private practice, I don't do it anymore, but I was working at a hospital in a clinical setting from time to time in a PRN as needed position. And I just felt like I could kind of tell sometimes walking into folks' rooms that there was almost like a weight lifted off of their shoulder when I would come in and they would see, oh, this is a Black dietitian coming to talk to me. You could just see people light up or people maybe feel a little bit differently Mm -hmm. and a little bit more open. And I think being able to represent diversity in the field is really beneficial because people are seeing a lot of different doctors, a lot of different people, maybe a lot of people who are the same. So to be able to kind of be that person for them, that's like, oh, okay, this person's in the room now. Yeah, finally. Yeah. (laughs) It feels really great to be able to kind of do that for people. And I think representation matters. It does. I think a lot like you can't be what you can't see. Mm. I don't remember where I heard that. I definitely did not make that up myself. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. That's real. But it's tough, especially when I was teaching for Drexel. A lot of the students had no idea what a dietitian was because they had never met one, never seen one, never heard of one. But I was able to kind of step in and show them this is what it's like. This is what it's like to get into nutrition. That's so important. Did any of them tell you they wanted to be a nutritionist or a dietitian? I had a couple of like high school students who were like, this is so interesting what you do. Of course, I had a lot of high school students who were like, I hate this class. (laughs) (laughs) I hate everything. Don't take it personal. That's so interesting. And I think it is true. You can't be what you can't see. So I think, especially I was saying when you did your outreach program with Dexel and you were able to go to the schools, I think young kids seeing that or even high school kids seeing that, that that's an option. Yeah. We talked about that at our last episode. We did take nutrition. Mm -hmm. Okay. When I went through my biology courses, it wasn't really something that was highlighted. It was Mm -hmm. basically a science that you should have understood the macro and micronutrients. And now we're going to build on that. But I think a lot of our counseling to our patients should really be about the food that they're eating. Yeah. And I think it's something that a lot of medical providers feel uncomfortable about because they don't know much about (laughs) it. Yeah, they don't totally know (laughs) what to say. (laughs) And also how to help our patients. It's an individual thing. So it takes up a lot of time, which is why I think 
you having a private practice and having your own company and nutritionists in general, I couldn't do what you guys do. I just don't have the patience and I also don't have the time. So I really appreciate being a PA. So. <laughs> Well, you have to see some blood, Aubrey. So that's a no for you. (laughs) Yeah, so it's out for me. (laughs) What are the psychological impacts of someone dieting and then kind of this yo-yo dieting effect? Do you think that it really impacts your patients? And how do you talk them through weight loss? And if that is their main goal, maybe initially coming in, how do you get them through those hurdles of saying, it's okay, we gained some weight or we lost some, yes. But how do you get them... I think there's like a high and a low and a high and a low with diets. And so how do you talk to your patients through those kind of psychological components? Yeah, I think it really depends on the person. Also, how much dieting they've kind of done historically. If it's somebody who's maybe younger and has only tried one diet, it might be kind of a different way to work through it than somebody who's been dieting for 30 years. And this has kind of been their whole life. Looking Mm -hmm. back on it, they've always been like, oh, I'm not comfortable with the way I look. So I like to talk to people a lot about finding comfort in their body image. Also talking to people, talking them through a lot of the beneficial things your body does for you. Your body is keeping you alive. It's protecting your organs. It's the reason you're able to walk around every day to get up and move, to do things with your children. So I think looking at it from that standpoint of my body is powerful, my body is a tool that I use every single day, helps to reframe it a little bit. I don't generally ever ask people their weight or if they've checked their weight or anything like that. And if somebody does come and they say, I gained two pounds since you know our last appointment, I kind of like to walk them through that. Like, okay, well, why did you check your weight? Like, what were you thinking when you decided to check your weight? Walk me through like the thought process of that. And maybe we can work through if you're feeling that way in the future, what can we think about or how can we direct our thoughts in a different way that's more positive of, oh, well, now I know I'm making better changes to my diet. I don't necessarily need to see that number on the scale. All right. I love to hear that you're navigating body image with folks because I think that's so huge. That's one of those main things that's underneath it. And so it makes me wonder if you ever run into folks that have disordered eating because I know I tend to get a lot of those. So do I. Right? especially because I specialize in sexual trauma and I see a lot of people in the trans community. Unfortunately, numbers are so high for disordered eating. What can you speak to about those experiences if you have them and how you work with those folks? And how you would refer them out. Like Ebony is saying, there is a point when becoming obsessive about your eating, even if it's healthy eating, even if it has to be so regimented. How do you go about navigating that with your patients if you ever have? So there even is a term now for that healthy Mm -hmm. eating pattern of disordered eating called orthorexia. And so I think with patients like that, there are just like how there's intuitive eating registered dietitians, there's certified eating disorder dietitians. And just because I feel like that's such a sensitive subject and your body image and what you're eating, it hits home so much. Mm -hmm. I would much rather refer somebody out if I start to see some inkling of like, maybe there's a pattern here of some disordered eating, because I wouldn't want to say the wrong thing. I would much rather refer somebody to somebody who's more qualified and studies this and works with these people all the time. There's a lot of places around Philadelphia where I live that I can refer people out to, or I can refer people to different online counseling programs that they can talk to because I think it's great to kind of get both that dietitian work in there if there's disordered eating, but also that therapy aspect of like, how can we kind of navigate these feelings and these actions? Sure. That multidisciplinary approach. I swear by that. I wish more people did it. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about how these companies benefit from diets and why are diets And even diet culture, because it doesn't necessarily have to be a single diet, Mm -hmm. even social media, like body images. And I think my adolescents struggle a lot with seeing the perfect size and the perfect body constantly shown to you. How do you think that impacts your patients? And do you find yourself telling your patients to take breaks from social media and from diets in general? Because I tend to tell my patients that there should be a limit to how much they're consuming because it's just constant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? I think we're fortunate that we're kind of in a place now where at least the younger generation, I've noticed, is a lot more body positive. I Mm -hmm. think maybe when I was younger, my parents were younger, it was very focused on you have to be thin, the thin mentality, like, you know, you have to look a certain way. And we're a lot more positive now, you know, saying that people can look any way. 
health at every size, you know, everybody is beautiful in their own bodies, which I really, really appreciate. Sometimes I tell people just to like, follow lots of accounts of dogs or something like that. (laughs) If they want to go on social media, then they're not seeing those images, you know, those images that are maybe making them question things or something like that. But I think to answer the first question as well about these companies benefiting from it, they are going to market to what they think people want. So if people are wanting keto diets, if people are wanting to go gluten-free, things like that, they're going to start marketing all of these products as healthy, beneficial products when maybe they're not really providing you too many nutrients. So I think that's where people can fall into the trap too, is like, oh, well, you know, I bought these crackers and they're gluten-free. I'm like, oh, well, like, what are the other ingredients or what are the nutrition facts on it? So, you know, kind of looking at it with like a little more in-depth, more like a detective is what I tell people. That's what you need to be at the grocery store. Yeah. You have to really have a list. Yeah. (laughs) And honestly, you can't go wrong in the fruits and vegetables section. There's no nutrition labels on that stuff because it's probably the only honest thing in there. Yeah. (laughs) The real tea. Right. So let's get into your grocery list a little bit. Can we ask you what some of your favorite meals are to prepare and maybe even your go-to recipe that you like to share with people you love? Yeah. Since like I told you, I have this background of being a vegetarian. I personally feel like I'm the side dish queen. You know, I was never like (laughs) the main dish person because, you know, we're always having like turkey at Thanksgiving or, (laughs) or like ham on Christmas. So that wasn't me. But I love like the side dishes. I would say the recipe I make the most and share with people, I am big on trying new recipes. Like I'll try anything once. But I do make a very delicious mac and cheese recipe on the stovetop that everyone loves. It's my crowd pleaser dish. Okay. (laughs) It's that time of year for it too. Exactly. So it might be coming soon. (laughs) (laughs) I have a vegan in my family. So what do you think some, even if you weren't vegan, some vegetarian or vegan friendly options are for the holidays? I think you can never go wrong with, I used to always bring to like every function I would always bring like roasted vegetables because I just feel like nobody's really bringing the roasted vegetables. That's what I always tell people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's probably nobody who's bringing them. So I'll bring them. I love to make, this is like a very specific recipe, but I love to make butternut squash or sweet potato and Brussels sprouts. I'll toss it with some like olive oil, salt, pepper, cayenne, and then maple syrup as well. Toss it all together. And it's great, especially in the fall, winter time for like a roasted veggie side. Yeah, that That sounds sounds really good. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then what about your favorite recipes? Do you have something that you just crave all the time? And can we talk about cravings? Why are they there? And why are they so annoying? (laughs) I can talk to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) A lot of times with cravings is that people, especially in these diet mentalities, Mm -hmm. are denying themselves certain foods, saying, I can't eat cookies because it's not part of my diet, doesn't follow my diet. So you keep denying, denying, denying yourself this food. Maybe you have like sugar-free cookies or something that really doesn't hit the spot. It doesn't satisfy you in the way that like the specific cookie you're thinking of would. So you keep denying it to the point where your body's like, I really need this cookie. I'm going to snap if I don't have this cookie. And then you might have 10 cookies because, okay, I just needed this cookie and it's so good and I haven't been able to have it. So that's why I always tell people all foods fit. Anything fits into a diet or a healthy diet. So if you want to have a cookie at the end of the night, that's great. Have your cookie at the end of the night. Then you're kind of letting yourself have that craving, enjoy that craving. Maybe you pair it with a piece of fruit and some peanut butter, something that's going to like nourish you, fill you up, give you some healthy fats, some protein, some carbohydrates to really round it out. That's what I'm more interested in is making it more complete, not taking it away from you. So I think that's where a lot of cravings come from is just that like pushing it aside and dampening it down until you really need to have it. Yeah. Starving your dopamine. (laughs) (laughs) These last couple of months for me, I don't know, the holidays have been chocolate heavy. I'm not even a big chocolate person. You're not. No. And like the last couple of months, I think it's stress too. So can we talk about like how stress affects either your cravings and then also affects your weight and your ability to kind of keep on focus to that healthy, not necessarily diet, but healthy lifestyle that you want for yourself? Yeah. I always ask all of my patients, especially in an introductory assessment, 
where their stress levels are at and mm-hmm. also how their sleep is, mm-hmm. which you wouldn't really think is diet related. Oh, yeah. The sleep and the stress, they're going to have a huge role in your ability to focus, like what you're able to do, the energy you're able to provide kind of to making these lifestyle changes. If you're super stressed, you're probably not going to be able to feel like you have the capacity to make these changes. And I don't want you to feel stressed. You know, I don't want you to be overwhelmed by this and not want to do it. So I like to kind of make that as a goal too, especially for people who have maybe poor stress or poor sleep to work on that as something that's going to be an important step to get them to the healthier lifestyle. Because I think we've kind of touched on it. It's more of a holistic thing. It has to do with everything, your diet, your physical activity, your sleep, your stress, they're all going to play a role. And then with the cravings, it's a lot easier to fall into those cravings when you're feeling super stressed because you're going to reach or lean on those comfort foods when you're stressed out and you're not having like the best time. Mm -hmm. Culturally, I think for black and brown people, food is one of our main coping skills. So that is something we have to diversify. For sure. I 100% agree. Let's talk about hypertension and diabetes and then cancer. Let's start with cancer first. What are some foods that people are always asking me? I have a family history of breast cancer or lung cancer or something else. They have this risk factor and it's really stressing them out. And they ask me, what is the best thing that I can do to prevent this? And like you spoke to before, there's a genetic component that sometimes no matter what we do, no matter how healthy we are, it's just there. So what are some protective foods? And I always tell people antioxidant-rich foods, but can you break that down? Because I think that people don't really always know what antioxidants are and how they help your body deal with free radicals. I know nutritionists would be able to speak to that a lot better than me. Yeah. So these foods with antioxidants, they're going to have some anti-inflammatory properties as well. So it's going to reduce the inflammation in your body. It's going to help your body a lot more with kind of fighting infection and things like that. So you're just kind of boosting your body's natural systems when you're having foods with antioxidants or phytochemicals, which are these chemicals you get from plant foods. So I always tell people to eat lots of different colors. That's the goal, especially if you have this history of cancer and you're trying to take the best approach with your diet. Like we were saying, it's not going to be 100% preventable. But if you can eat lots of different colors, you're going to get lots of different vitamins and minerals and you're going to be able to boost that natural system. So especially things like berries and bright orange vegetables and fruits, they're going to have the extra power punch with the the vitamins. I feel like that should be on a shirt. Did you eat your colors today? Yeah. Like, yeah. I love that. I'm going to remember <laughs> that for life. <laughs> Parents are always asking me like hacks to get their kids to eat. And I'm like, you got to make it colorful, man. And you got to mm-hmm. cut it into stars and you have to make it really interesting or they're not going to want it. Yeah, make it fun. <laughs> make it fun. Yeah. Put it on different plates and colors and make it fun for them to interact with. And that can help reduce your risk of cancer. I can't obviously 100% prevent it, but I think that getting those antioxidants and really trying to decrease, like you said, the inflammation in your body through your diet is such an important part about that. So talk about diabetes, another pro-inflammatory condition. How would you counsel your patients? And I know it's very individual, like we spoke about, but how do you talk your patients through diabetes? Let's say they come in and they're on a couple of medications and their physician wants them to see a nutritionist at this point. And they're having a hard time because maybe their diabetes is just, we call it brittle diabetic, which is a horrible thing to say about someone, but it means your diabetes is not very well controlled with medications for whatever reason. So we're looking for dietary guidance for a diabetic at this point. And Aubrey, they come to you. So what would you say? I would say the biggest thing is really the types of carbohydrates that you're having and the volume of carbohydrates that you're having. You should always be aiming for whole grains if you're having grain foods or there's a lot of carbohydrates in like fruits and vegetables as well. And then balancing those is what's going to help balance the blood sugar. So if you had like a bowl of cereal, the cereal is going to have carbohydrates in it. If you have milk with it, there might be a little bit of fat in there, but it's mostly carbohydrates as well. That's going to spike the blood sugar and then it's going to kind of come crashing down. Now, if you had cereal and then maybe you had a side of almonds, so the cereal is going to be that carbohydrate and the milk will have it as well, but the almonds have proteins and fats. So they're going to slow the digestion of those carbohydrates. So instead of the sugar spiking up and coming back down, it's going to be like a nice, healthy level plateau instead of jumping up and down. We want to avoid the ups and downs and keep it as more of like a rolling hills instead of high peaks. Mm, mm-hmm. 
I think also it's like the fruit because everyone assumes fruit is really high. sugar. High in sugar. Milk too is a sugar. And so when we have a diabetic patient and they're struggling with their sugars, is it better to see a diabetic nutritionist? That's usually who we would send these patients to. Or can you counsel them as well? Do you see both of them? I do. I see a lot of patients who have diabetes. It also, I think, benefits to see a certified diabetes educator, dietitian, because they're going to be able to do more of that also medication management. I know a good deal about medication and insulin and things like that, but I would never feel comfortable telling somebody like, yeah, you should do this with your insulin because that's just not my area of specialty. And so I think it is beneficial. I think it's always beneficial to see somebody who specializes in what you're kind of going for or looking for. So whether it's diabetes or there are oncology and cancer dietitians. Or GI nutritionists who only see like Crohn's and who has that specialty. But I think it's also good to have someone who can kind of give you that big picture too. Yeah, comprehensive care. Yeah, to just give you a different approach and maybe that you're saying something the diabetes educator didn't say or just how you're saying it. You know, we had to go through carb counting in school. It's exhausting. So is it still being like, I know for certain diabetics that does work, but how is it being taught now in nutrition? Do you guys still do carb counting or is it more holistic and trying to just get that protein in there? It kind of depends on the patient and like if they're on insulin or just medications or things like that. Because somebody who is taking insulin, it's going to be a lot more important to make sure they're eating a very regimented amount of carbohydrates at the meals because we want to have the right (laughs) amount of insulin for the right amount of food that we're eating. So I think it depends on the person. But I would say as far as like carbohydrate counting goes, we're kind of a little different or looser, you could say, using something called exchanges. And so kind of just teaching people about like the general knowledge of what is an exchange. So an exchange means something has about 15 grams of carbs. And so saying you could have three exchanges at a meal or one exchange at a snack, something like that. It makes it like a little bit more digestible, I think, to kind of use those terms. Oh, so now they're saying exchanges. I was in school five years ago (laughs) and now they're using all different terminology for this. So it's how it goes. You have to get with it or get lost, I guess. Always changing. In some ways, that's a good thing. That means they're revamping the curriculum. Because you're making it more understandable to the patients. I think that was like the one thing my diabetic patient like, they want me to count all my carbs and it's like impossible to count my carbs all mm. the time for every meal you have. Let's talk about high blood pressure or hypertension mm-hmm. and how much salt is in all of our food. And you don't know, especially when you no. eat out, you don't know. So how do you go about educating your patients about how much salt you actually should have in a day and what are the implications of salt intake if you have too much of it? So people should have 2,300 milligrams or less a day of salt. So I know that's like a super vague number to just say. It's about a teaspoon of salt when it all boils down to it, which is... Look at Ebony's face. (laughs) Wild. Yep. (laughs) It's not very much at all. And salt is in so much now. Everything has salt. And a lot of things are really tricky, I noticed, especially in my internship. I was working in an outpatient setting where I was seeing a lot of people who had home care or hospice care. And so they had hypertension, high blood pressure, and maybe they needed to reduce their salt intake. So they were like, oh, well, I bought this low sodium soup at the store. But then the low sodium soup, you know, if you had the whole can, it was a thousand milligrams of salt (laughs) or something like that. So especially with those food claims, it's so tough to know. That's why I say you have to be a detective at the grocery store. Mm -hmm. You really do have to look at those labels and kind of nitpick through the little things. And then if you're having too much salt and maybe too much of like saturated fats, things like that, that's what's going to increase the blood pressure and it could cause a stroke. So we don't want that to happen. And then if you're having too much saturated fat, that could block the arteries and cause a heart attack. It's kind of a tricky, slippery slope to navigate, like, you know, how much of all these things should I be eating? Mm -hmm. When you see a patient, I'm just curious now, do they tell you their blood pressure when you do an intake? Do you have like that information before you start counseling them to help them with the specific things? Or do they say like, I have high blood pressure. And so I want you to help me address this. Or is it something like on your intake, like when Ebony does an intake, she has like a million and one questions about everything that you could ever imagine. So when you do an intake, Do you know about the background of your patient? Because sometimes you ask a patient if they have high blood pressure and they say no to you. You ask them if they have high cholesterol and I can see it on the thing. I say, it says you have high cholesterol. Do you have issues with your cholesterol? They're like, no. And then I look at their cholesterol. It's like 300. So do you ever talk to their medical providers or when you get a referral? How does it work? 
So usually people will have a referral from their doctor saying, please advise or counsel this patient on high blood pressure, et cetera. Like you said, sometimes people will say, oh, no, that's not a problem. I don't have that problem. I do ask people about all their medication. So oftentimes I can kind of find things out in that way if maybe it wasn't brought to my attention. I like to run through things as well because I'll say any past medical history and they'll say, oh, no. And I'm like, diabetes, high blood pressure, (laughs) you know, high cholesterol. They're like, oh, well, yeah, I have high blood pressure. But it's under control. (laughs) Yeah. So I definitely like to monitor people's labs. Like I said, you know, I'm not usually very weight based. For me, it's more about the labs. Oh, Aubrey. Aubrey's reading labs. (laughs) As you should. Yeah. Right. You know, I would rather, even if you weighed the same two years apart, but your A1C went down two points, that's great. That's what I want to see. That's what I would prefer to see because that's really what's going to make the difference. Oh, for sure. And those lifestyle modifiers can really, like we said, is activity is something that you teach your patients or how do you go about teaching them? Because eating is really one part of the equation, but then it's also activity. And it's been really hard with COVID to get active. I'm so upset. Yeah. I was going to get my husband a gym membership for Christmas and I'm like, I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> it's not happening anymore. It's not happening. I think that'll just be thrown out of the window. So do you also encourage them to just be a little bit more active? What is the activity that you usually start at with your patients to just kind of get them acclimated? You know, I usually start people out, especially people who say they don't exercise at all. I always just start people with walking. Yep. I think people are amazed at the benefits that you can get from walking because it's not just about this high intensity activity. Like, yeah, that's great sometimes. (laughs) But also walking, if you're walking with a little pep in your step, I tell people like, you should probably feel slightly uncomfortable talking to somebody next to you. That's kind of the pace you want to be going at. Mm -hmm. You'd have a light sweat maybe. But even just moving your body, there are so many benefits to your blood flow, your circulation, like getting that activity, boosting your heart health, anxiety, bone health. Yeah, your anxiety. Me and Ebony were just talking about this because I was telling her, this little peek sneak into what our conversations are like on a random Thursday. (laughs) (laughs) I was telling her, I really need to be active because I've been really anxious. I mean, this is two years of a pandemic, okay? And all these other healthcare providers aren't telling you, I'm tired. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm tired, tired and I'm stressed and I'm tired of seeing really sick patients. Yeah. We all need to be walking and get your boost. Yeah. <laughs> but I will say something that I really think helps with my anxiety is movement because mm-hmm. you cannot focus on what is going on in your head and on an elliptical or even walking really fast. You just have to right. focus on not falling, not tripping on your shoelace or. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Or looking around you, orienting to your environment if you're outside. Exactly. If you're outside, making sure that you're hit by a car, you're in a safe location. So I think it's really beneficial. And I think it really helps with mental health diagnoses as well, like depression and anxiety. I mean, getting the energy to do those things. But even just like you said, walking, even if you haven't built yourself up to that fast pace yet, if you do about seven to 10,000 steps, which seems like a lot, but like 5,000 steps is what you would average do pre-COVID. So getting up, going to the office, walking up the stairs, maybe not instead of taking the elevator, coming back down, going to get your coffee. If you do that throughout the day, that's 5,000 steps right there. So you're not far off from seven to 10,000 steps. And so that really can decrease your risk for high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, just being a little bit more active. So thank you for speaking to that. I want to ask you if you know any food secrets, like Mm. secrets about the food industry that the average person does not know. I think I know so many things about pharmaceuticals and like the (laughs) FDA and like how things are passed and things like that. Do you know anything about the food industry? I think my biggest, Aubrey, before you answer this, I want to (laughs) say, because I always do this to our guests. I ask them a question and I talk, sorry. (laughs) But I will say these supplements are not regulated and I'm not anti-supplement, but can you just speak about supplements and then also give us your food secret? I'll have to think on the food secret maybe while I'm talking about the supplements. But no, supplements are not regulated. That's a big question I get from a lot of people. A lot of people will come in and they'll say that they're taking XYZ. Half the time I kind of have to look up what it is because it's usually like a a mix of like a couple different things. And then I have to kind of see like, oh, are you reaching an upper limit of like a vitamin or a mineral that you maybe shouldn't be because maybe it's causing some symptoms. 
And I think that's the tricky thing with supplements is you can read so much online, like, you know, okay, I'm having headaches. Maybe I should be taking vitamin B6 or something like that. But if you're getting enough from your diet and then you're taking a supplement, you know, you could be reaching a toxic upper level. So I think it's always a good point to, you know, come to your doctor and say, I'm concerned maybe like about my vitamin D levels or something. People, especially in the US, chronically low vitamin D. So getting it checked and then if your doctor feels as though they need to prescribe you a supplement, then they can do so. Right. Mm -hmm. But just kind of taking it on your own, you're really taking it into your own hands. You don't know if you're getting enough already and if that's something that you necessarily need to be focusing on. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. What about food hacks from a dietitian? Like I know something that helped me was to put my portions on a smaller plate. That helps me to not feel like I'm cheating myself or I'm depriving myself. Like you're still getting a good amount of food, Ebony. It's not that you're like (laughs) not eating anything. You just want more, but you don't need the whole bag of fries. (laughs) So any hacks like that, that you either give your patients or that they say that you're like, ooh, that's helpful. Yeah, a lot, a lot, a lot of the work I do with people is on hunger and fullness. Intuitive eating. Yes, intuitive eating. I'm not a certified intuitive eating RD. (laughs) But a lot of people, especially people who have been through diet culture and tried lots of diets, you know, diets tell you to suppress your hunger cues. So people are learning for the first time, like, what does it mean to be hungry? And also, what does it mean to be full? Because a lot of us eat past the point of contentment. Mm -hmm. So a big thing with that and working on the fullness aspect of it, because I think it's really easy to sit down, especially like if you're busy and use your fork as like a shovel. I do it all the time. (laughs) I have 10 minutes to finish this before I have this other meeting. But I tell a lot of people to try to notice your fullness cues Try to take a bite, put down your fork, chew your bite, eat it, finish your bite, then pick up your fork again and go for another bite. And then you're going to take a lot more time to eat. And you might realize, I actually do feel full. You know, I feel content versus if you eat it all really fast, you might not notice those feelings. And 10 minutes, 20 minutes later, you might say, I ate too much. Yeah, I feel sick. I ate too much. I'm disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) So giving yourself that space and that time. So mindfulness, Ebony. Yes. Mindful eating is something I do a lot. It's actually a trauma intervention. Oh, okay. Yeah. A lot of times it helps people to start even understanding the concept of mindfulness because everyone eats. You got to eat. So you can start with like noticing, how does this taste? What is it like incorporating all five senses? So I think that's awesome. The texture. Yeah. How does it smell? Yeah. Is it crunchy or is it soft? All that stuff. That's also how we help people who struggle with selective eating disorders or they're extremely selective. So we really try to have them be experiments in their food. So you don't necessarily have to eat the food. So we'll start with like just showing them peas and then having them fill the peas. And then over the course of a two or four days, then we can say, okay, now put one in your mouth and just feel it. That's how we can naturally kind of go through that exploratory. It's just a rushed society, Aubrey. Yeah. I think that's a lot of the problem. It's stress. And it's just everything has to be done so that we can move on to the next thing. I don't know how many people have actually sat down. Like I was one of the families where my dad was like really big on like, we need to sit down and have dinner as a family. Mm. And I don't know how many of my patients actually sit down and have dinner as a family anymore. There could be other things that could be preventing that from happening. But I think that just sitting down and having a meal and even talking to someone else, like you eat slower when you're talking to someone else for the most part. Enjoying the conversation and the meal as a multi-level type of thing instead of just when you an experience an experience exactly so thank you for bringing that up that was an interesting hack so you have all the hacks ebony you have more hacks than you think you do (laughs) she's putting them in her back pocket like you know (laughs) just pull them out when it's necessary do you have a favorite memory with food aubrey like something that you always think about or like a holiday or a birthday where you had a certain cake or like anything that you think of (laughs) yeah that's a great question I think I just reflect often on Thanksgiving. I think all of us or a lot of us, you know, I won't say all of us have a lot of good or like familial memories around Thanksgiving. And I think just being able to experience that holiday, a holiday that's so heavily food related with family really connects me to kind of what I do. And I feel like every Thanksgiving is good. You know, I enjoy it. And I enjoy being able to kind of share information with people and things like that. And I appreciate that I'm in a space where a lot of people understand what I do. 
So I'm able to have like a Thanksgiving and people aren't saying like, oh, well, you got to tell me about this diet or, you know, I want to lose 10 pounds. I need you to write me a meal plan, something like that. Being in that space, you know, where we can all kind of enjoy and experience it together. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Well, thank you, Aubrey. Is there anything you wanted to tell our guests or anything else you wanted to add? We're really happy that you joined us. You're so fun. If you're in Pennsylvania, go to see Aubrey. Yes, she is do. amazing. <laughs> she is literally so nice. You can never be mad at her ever, 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 ever. <laughs> if I ever get any complaints about Aubrey, I'll be like, that's a lie. Right. Not true. Not true at all. So www.aubreyred with two Ds, nutrition.com again. And her Instagram is busy, B-U-S-Y dot babes dot nutritionist. You can follow her on her Instagram. Thank you so much for joining us. It was such a pleasure speaking to you, getting to know you. And we want to, again, encourage all of our young listeners to really think about nutrition as a field. We need more Black nutritionists. Yeah, we do. Yeah. We need more Latino nutritionists. We need more Indigenous nutritionists. We just need different people. We need male nutritionists too. Yes. Because I think that obesity is something that, and other things are hypertension. These things affect men as well. So sometimes hearing it from someone who is the same sex as you or a sex that you identify with helps. So we just need a more diverse nutrition field. And we also need to pay nutritionists more. That's another thing that I'm going to be advocating for on this show. But thank you, Aubrey, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Ebony, any last words? No, I guess I'm just really glad that you spent your time with us, especially right before the holidays. So appreciate your words of wisdom today, Aubrey. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Thank you for tuning in to Cure the Culture with Ebony Gadsden and Nia Phillips. If you have any questions or comments about the show, email us at cureforculture at gmail.com. Remember, the opinions expressed on this show, although research-based, are strictly conversational. All healthcare decisions should be discussed with your treating provider. Until next time, be safe, be well, be informed. Subscribe for a seat at the table with Ebony and Nia every other Friday at 8 p.m.